Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're talking about immigration. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Catherine Ventura, an immigration attorney. She works at the Capital Area Immigrant Rights Coalition, also known as the CARE Coalition here in Washington, D.C. I wanted to talk to Catherine because as an immigrant herself, she helps detained immigrants in difficult legal proceedings. Immigrants in detention are often expected to represent themselves and are not granted the right to legal counsel. Catherine works to bridge this gap by representing detainees whose rights and humanity are so often denied. Before we hear from Catherine, I'm joined by Alex John Burns, a member of the BGG production team, to chat about one of the biggest immigration stories in the news today. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ashanti. Uh, You may not know this, but I actually was an intern at Care Coalition a few years back, so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the work that they do. I volunteered with a few immigration organizations, both under the Trump and the Biden administrations. And while Trump enacted some pretty horrendous legal policies, immigration policy in the U.S. is far from reformed. In recent weeks, we have seen Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis busing and flying immigrants northbound, especially to a lot of East Coast cities and regions. They arrived suddenly and reportedly without much warning. Migrants dropped off in Martha's Vineyard and outside the vice president's D.C. residence. The move, courtesy of the governors of Florida and Texas, a political message to blue states. It's infuriating to watch conservative politicians treat immigrants as political pawns and play with their lives as if it's some game. This is an issue we can't reduce to just policy. And these salacious news stories aren't doing anything but putting people in difficult and just downright dangerous situations. The way politicians speak about immigrants speaks volumes about them, their politics, and their respect for human life. How can we even begin to interpret the actions of these politicians for what they are? Political comments at the expense of these people's lives. This country has a history of treating black and brown people poorly. It started with the indigenous communities that were here taking their land away from them, putting them on reservations, forced boarding schools. It is really in the DNA of this country not to see anyone who does not have white skin as less than human. There's no way to deny that everything that is happening is pure politics on the Republican side, the conservative side, the MAGA side. The fact that you have all of this money to send immigrants across the country, but yet you're not investing in mental health. You're not investing in education. You're not investing in gun policy prevention. This is all about people being able to get their licks in right before the November election and get their base fired up. Unfortunately, I do think we're going to see more of this because there has been more of a positive response from the supporters of Abbott and DeSantis and other people. If you just go on social media, it's really sickening to me the fact that people are cheering this on. But it is incumbent on us as people who see this as what it is, just a really sick political game, to speak up and speak out about it. I'm really glad that there are already lawsuits happening, not only just from 
attorneys who are seeing this as horrible as some of the people who were sent across the country under false pretenses. I'm really glad that it is going to play out in court. And hopefully that will deter any future governors or any future people who want to do this from stopping to do it. And people who live in these states, you should care because that money is your taxpayers' dollars that is being spent to do this. And it's also your taxpayer dollars that are going to be used to defend it in court. Yeah, I completely agree. Another story in the news lately was about how the ACLU is calling on the Biden administration to shut down an immigration detention center in New Mexico, where a man recently died by suicide, making his death the third death of a detainee in ICE custody this year. They claim that the conditions are unlivable, and many detainees are not even able to reach their lawyers. Meanwhile, ICE is claiming that the facility is up to par. These detention centers, much like criminal facilities, are part of the prison industrial complex, and also a huge misuse of taxpayer dollars. Detention centers feel like a recurring tragedy. So does most of the conversation about immigration reform in our country. Is there a path forward via federal regulation? And if so, what should listeners be looking out for on the ballot next month? I don't think anyone believes that ICE facilities are up to par (laughs) or that any of these huge prison complexes are. Just with the things that we see coming out, not only the stories, but also photos that people will send their family members about how they're being treated. This is just something that needs a complete overhaul. This is about reforming immigration, but it's also about reforming our criminal justice system. So what we need to look at is who is on the ballot next month in these law enforcement positions. So yes, this is members of Congress, but also law enforcement positions consist of your attorney general, sheriffs, judges, prosecutors, DAs. These are also people who play a huge role in the criminal justice system. So we want to be looking for people who want to do reforms and make it better. And I'm not going to lie, this is definitely a very tricky subject because there is criminal justice reform overlapping with public safety as well, which is why we see so many people concerned with crime lately because they want better public safety, but they think that means you have to be extremely tough when it comes to the criminal justice system. So these people in these roles, it is really hard because they do have to walk a balance of public safety, criminal justice reform, and immigration reform. But the fact is, I do think that it can get done because we see how other countries are able to do it. Is just not an easy one-size-fits-all solution. This is the policy that's going to get it done. We have to look at all of the areas that are affecting what we just talked about. And then that's how we get on a path towards reform and regulation. But it takes all of these different people working together and us addressing all of the systematic issues, especially racist systematic issues that lead to these problems. No, Ashanti, I completely agree. And I think we're just seeing in so many of these examples in the news, it's just a complete misuse of taxpayer dollars and seeing this happen again and again. 
Like, if you're concerned about the economy, you should also be concerned about these issues as well. So, just so frustrating. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm with you, Alex. You'll hear us talk more about the actions of Southern governors, in addition to more details on underreported immigration issues, in my conversation with attorney Catherine Ventura. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, everyone. Today we are talking to Catherine Ventura. Catherine, it is so great to talk to you. How are you today? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me. It is truly an honor to be here after all the wonderful women of color that have been here before. And, you know, thank you. Thank you for holding the space for women like me that not usually have a space on the table. And you're giving us one. So thank you. Thank you. That means so much. It's why the BGG was formed and exists. And I want to dive in with having you tell us just a little bit more about yourself, introducing yourself to the BGG community and about the work that you do around immigration, which is our midterm topic today. Of course. I'm Catherine Ventura. I am originally from Dominican Republic, so I am an immigrant myself here in this country. I currently work as a senior attorney at CARE Coalition, which is the Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition, and I work exclusively representing uh, people in deportation proceedings, mostly people that are currently in immigration detention centers. So tell us a little bit about what made you move into this specific field of immigration law and why it is just so important to you personally and professionally, because we especially know that as women of color, with our career choices, there's normally something that really drives us to do it, especially if it's something in the civic engagement and political space. Of course. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started my legal career um, with a political science background, but with no idea what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to do something in human rights, and I didn't really understand what that meant or what that would entail. And I wanted to do human rights and not sit in an office and write a report Mm -hmm. for someone (laughs) that was going to be reading it in their office and not impact the community that I was trying to help. Mm -hmm. So I. I realized that immigration was that way of doing human rights work within the United States and doing it in a way that was directly impacting the people. Like I had access to helping people that didn't have the same privilege as me of coming to this country and helping them from a human rights perspective and humanitarian uh, law perspective, which is what I do now. Being an immigrant myself in this country is one of the things that drove me the most to this work. But at the same time, it's one of the things that makes it the hardest because I cannot detach myself from the work as easily as other people. And the clients that I deal with are people that look like my friends, like my family, that have stories similar to people that I know. And that definitely makes the work harder. But it also makes me want to keep fighting even harder. (laughs) So I guess it's a win-win. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about how you have seen just the immigration scene change. I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada, where immigration, always a hot topic. I started to really get involved in the issue when I was in college. 
especially writing articles for the newspapers, supporting other young people who were immigrants or their parents were immigrants. So as a bystander, I've seen so much about how this has changed. But for someone who is in the thick of it, the heart of it every day, how has it changed for you? And also, where do you think we're at in this moment? I feel like it hasn't changed enough. Um, I feel there's so much work to do still. I started this work under a different administration and I continue to do it under this administration. And there's still areas, you know, I'm still as busy as I've been since the day Mm -hmm. I started this work. It doesn't stop. It doesn't become easier. And not much has changed, especially because I focus directly on representing detained population. And I feel like that is a population that is often not talked about in the media. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, that we constantly hear about immigration and it's a hot topic, but we cover certain areas of immigration. Mm -hmm. um, And the ones that we pick to talk about are the ones that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So I don't hear enough about detained work. And I think even just thinking about what policies I wish had changed or what things I wish I see like more of in the media, I even feel radical saying these things because for me, I think give people access to lawyers. And that's something Mm -hmm. that we never talk about. And a lot of people don't know that in immigration proceedings is the only proceedings in the United States where we are constantly incarcerating people detaining them in a jail-like facility, if not a straight jail, and they're not awarded the right to a lawyer. And they have to defend themselves. They have to assert their rights because as a lawyer, I'm not reinventing immigration law. I am not creating the laws. I'm only applying the ones that already exist. Mm -hmm. So these people are expected to defend themselves before the United States, against the United States, in a language that they don't understand. And assert rights that they themselves don't even understand. And I think that it's a very unfair thing to do to expect someone to represent themselves in a setting like that without giving them a right to counsel. And, you know, we have the Fifth Amendment where it says no person shall be deprived of life or liberty with due process. And then doesn't due process include the right to an attorney? Doesn't due process include a fair shot? And that involves an attorney. And but then we have the Sixth Amendment that doesn't protect immigrants, doesn't protect people in detention centers because immigration is considered a civil matter, even though we incarcerate people as if they were criminals. And one of the things I want for our listeners to recognize, too, is when you're saying people, that's not just 18 and older. This includes young kids as well, that they are sitting before a judge in a language they don't understand, their little feet dangling from chairs because they're that small. This process also applies to them. So y'all, we're not just talking about grown people. We're talking about our babies too. Right. Yeah. And that is even more heartbreaking to think about. And we still don't talk about it enough. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I wanted to say it, because we talk about it here. We talk about it on the BGG. We talk about the hard things, the uncomfortable things, but they're the real things that the women in our community are fighting for. And I want to dive in a little bit about 
Title 42. So most of our listeners, you probably have heard this, but Catherine, where does Title 42 stand and what you would like to see the Biden administration do about it? So I guess before I talk about Title 42, I think I first would like to talk a little bit about the Remain in Mexico policy that Mm -hmm. was highly criticized under the Trump administration. And essentially, the Remain in Mexico policy allowed the government to exclude people from the United States, leave people in the United States waiting in Mexico while their asylum applications were pending. That's no longer in place at the moment. But then Title 42 came along around March of 2020, I believe. And under Title 22, we kind of masked crossing the borders under a public health crisis. And that is my opinion. We, under Title 42, now the United States and CBP was allowed to exclude everyone, even those seeking asylum from entering the United States. And we're talking about asylum is a right recognized under international law, under refugee law, Mm -hmm. under United States law. Mm -hmm. And for you to be able to apply for asylum, you have to be within the United States. So this essentially created a direct contradiction of the laws that we already had in place. And this essentially prohibited people from asserting a right that under the law, they weren't entitled to. And we are talking again about people all ages (laughs) fleeing violence, fleeing life-threatening situations. So hopefully that gets lifted soon because most of the COVID-19 protocols have been lifted now. So if that was the excuse, I don't see a reason for that to stand. And these stories are so real, especially for the women and the children. I do a lot of work with Oxfam America. We work on immigration issues and I hear these women's story. And I still think in like so many people's minds, they forget there is a reason why people are trying to come here and build a better life. It's because they cannot do that where they're at. And one of the biggest immigration issues that we have seen in the news is around what some of the Southern governors have been doing, particularly Abbott in Texas, DeSantis in Florida, where they are sending immigrants to mainly East Coast places. So I currently reside in D.C. I saw the video of where they took a bus of immigrants and dropped them off in front of the vice president's residence. They've gone to Martha's Vineyard. Catherine, what are you making of what they are doing? And I will say this just really infuriated me because it's just a continuation of how we have seen Black, Brown, and Indigenous people treated in this country where they like to pick us up and ship us off somewhere where we can't be seen, we can't be heard, we're not a problem. It is exactly that. It comes back to treating them like objects and not seeing them as people. This was certainly a political stunt. We're using people, and I know this phrase has been even used a lot in the media, but we are using people to make a point. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like you said, is infuriating. It's unbelievable that we've reached this point. 
Thankfully, the response from organizations in these states have been very positive and everyone has mobilized to help people access resources, social services and um, legal services. But the fact that um, these people were first screened in, let's say, for example, the ones that were screened in Texas and now they are brought to the East Coast, potentially they have court hearings in Texas that now they have to figure out how to go back to. So this mm-hmm. created another layer of issues and people trying to go to their court hearings. And, you know, we're always talking about, you know, these immigrants coming into my country and trying to break my laws and all of this. And then you make it harder for them to follow the laws because now these are people that are miles away from their court hearings and they have to figure out a way to go back. I know that some organizations on the ground have been trying to help People file motions to change venue and to change their cases to the East Coast. Hopefully that helps most of these people. But like I said, it's infuriating kind of like the political stunt that was pulled with this. And then in a way, it also made me laugh because in in a cynical way, I would say, because we talk about also how costly immigration is and like all of these numbers about like we need to protect our borders because these immigrants are going to come and steal our money or whatever it is that people say. And then how much do you think it costs to bring people all the way? Millions, just millions. And in Texas, they have a horrible grid, but they have money to do this. They can't fix the power problem. You know, sending prayers to everyone in Florida. They're dealing with the hurricane and yet DeSantis is asking for federal funds we could have a whole show about how I feel about that. But yet again, you found millions to do this. And I'm not asking, you know, this with your lawyer hat on, I don't want to get you in trouble. But the first thing for me when I saw this is how is this not another form of human trafficking? Um, I think that that is definitely a question that I've seen in the media a lot. I don't even know how to answer that question because it's, it is definitely something so horrendous. Some of these people actually benefited from this trip because they already had family in the East Coast and they just got a free, <laughs> it's true, it's true, a free flight or a free so bus like you, to the like, East Coast. But, so some of them are like, thanks, you did me a solid. <laughs> right. But at the same time, the whole point behind it is what I find so uncomfortable. The cruelty is the point. Right. It's so cruel. It's continuation of the cruelty, in my opinion. And the mockery of people. You know, mm-hmm. we are, again, treating these people as not people. You know, like we can move them around as we choose. And these were people that were already screened into the United States, that were already mm-hmm. allowed to stay in, that already are in the process of potentially seeking asylum. So there was no point in doing this. No point. If you could have used all of that money and assigned lawyers to all of these people, it would have been a better use of your money. It would have been a better way to enforce immigration laws. It would have been a better way to protect people and protect the system that you've created and enforcing the laws that you've created. And you mentioned that we're seeing so many of the groups who are supporting the arrival of the immigrants, like D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. You know, she did declare a public health emergency around the influx of migrants who were coming to the D.C. area. So as I mentioned, this season, we're talking about the midterms. I think a lot of things about what 
DeSantis and Abbott are doing, being a political stunt. And then you also have others such as Blake Masters in Arizona. He continues to push the replacement theory that, oh, this is just being used as a tool by the Democratic Party to import Latino voters to win elections. And we know that there's just so much misinformation that happens in politics generally. If you could wave your magic immigration law wand, what are some of the things that you would like to see change that you think could better improve the immigration system? Oh, my God. If I knew the answer to that, I'd probably be president of the United States. Um, I'm kidding. I, I can't even vote. So I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I can't even get there. But no, I do think that I wish, I wish, I wish we recognized more the rights of people in detention. I wish we recognized more universal representation and that we talked more about that possibility. And by universal representation, I mean representing people in deportation proceedings that are being incarcerated by the federal legal system and that have to represent themselves in court. I wish that people saw this as a way to fix the intersection of multiple, multiple flawed systems. You know, when we're talking about the detained population or immigrants, we're talking about various social, political, legal systems that are oppressing these people. And the solution needs to be one that also recognizes those intersectionalities. And I wish also that people would see access to lawyers as, you know, another mechanism of enforcement, another mechanism of protecting rights that already exist, of ensuring efficiency, that I assure you, it's going to be cheaper than what we're currently doing. And that will ensure that the people that are fleeing violence are able to assert their rights here in the country and that present themselves in court and that protect the laws of the United States as well, which are already in place. I really feel that if I had a magic wand, lawyers for everyone. That would be my answer. <laughs> lawyers for everyone. I like it. That's going to be your slogan when you run for president. <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> okay. So we love to have our listeners go and explain to the people in their community and their network just what we're talking about. So give everyone just that really simple explanation that they can take away about why we do have immigrants coming here. You did touch on it a little bit and why they do get put in detention and why you're working to help make this process better. Oh, that's a, um, <laughs> I'll do my best because that's a very complicated <laughs> question, I would say. But we can see it in the same way that we see Ukrainians fleeing their country. Mm. These people are fleeing life-threatening situations in the same way that any other refugee flees. And they are being detained for multiple reasons. They're being detained for entering without being admitted, which is simply you entered what they, the so-called illegally, which I hate that term, because when you enter, yeah. you're entering to assert a right. So it is under the law that you're entering. So what I, essentially what I do is 
represent those people that under the law are fleeing life-threatening situations and that are just trying to be protected in this country under the laws that already exist in this country. I have clients that have been detained because the tints of their cars were too dark. I have clients mm. who were detained because they didn't do catch and release. You know when you go fishing and like you catch the fish and you have to release it under the law? I have clients that have been detained because of that. Detained for driving your car with your window tint too dark. Detained for fishing, a, a recreational activity. Just detained for living your life. There's so many reasons uh, why people get detained. And then the other side of that is we have already recognized a law under which you shall not be returned to a place where you fear torture and danger to your life. And most of the people that I represent, no matter their contact with the criminal system, are exactly doing that. We are essentially double punishing people for their contacts with the criminal system. And we all know which communities are mostly patrolled in this country. We already know who are the people that are most vulnerable to the systems because there is a direct criminal system, immigration system pipeline, and it's mostly brown and black communities are being affected by this. Mm -hmm. And essentially my job is just to represent and sustain the rights that these people are entitled to. And I don't make the laws. The laws were made by somebody else. The only thing that I do is explain those laws to a judge and why they apply to my client or not. And I guess it's as simple as that. <laughs> Catherine, this has been so educational. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the work that you do. Tell everyone how they can follow the work that you and CARE Coalition are doing as we continue to elevate what is happening with immigrants and detentions in the national conversation. Of course. And thank you so much, Ashanti, for having me. Um, you can follow us on at CARE Coalition on Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter, all the social platforms to kind of keep tabs on what we're doing. But as well, you can support with donations. That's not any type of donation that you can do to any organization of your choice is going to help the cause. Or, you know, volunteering for a day. Anything that you want to do that comes from your heart because you care about this, because you acknowledge that um, uh, we are working with people and people that deserve to be protected and their rights to be insured. I think any help that you can lend is more than welcomed and appreciated. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This season, we at the BGG are zooming in on the individual and going on the scene. Today, we are going on the scene for immigration with Mohana Rajakumar. She tells us about her own relationship to immigration as a first-generation American and the importance in shifting the narratives we use to talk about immigration to one that better honors the immense contributions immigrants have made to America. Immigration touches all of us. My name is Mohana Rajakumar. I'm a novelist turned filmmaker who's working on her first feature about first-generation Indian Americans in college. 
When I was a kid, I grew up in Florida and I was the child of Indian immigrants to the United States. And so I was very aware of how different I was from everyone else around me. It takes a while to, for your kind of childhood to catch up with you. So now I'm a mom and a lot of different pieces of identity are starting to come together. But when I was growing up, you kind of had to choose. You had to choose whether you were American or you were from another background. Whereas now, like for my kids, they can be Indian American or their father's family is from Laos, so they can be Asian American. Whereas I definitely didn't feel that that was available to me. When I was growing up, assimilation was the name of the game. Assimilating can be very harmful. I know why people did it, because it was an easy way to, to get along and to integrate. But I'm really happy to see this idea of like a, a hyphenated identity of, of being able to balance both parts. So to contribute to the Americanness, but also to, to know that your home culture has value and to see that being supported in public. I think that's really, really great and a really positive, hopeful trend for the future. One, one thing we need to do is definitely change the conversation around immigration is to understand, yes, okay, the U.S. is a, is a place for asylum seekers and that, that that's a proud heritage that we have that we can continue offering to people. But I think also understanding that the peoples of the world have things to offer. If we took away immigrant contributions to America, we would be much, much like literally poorer, like monetarily, but even in the cultural and the technical sense. I think policy and culture are really intertwined. So if we can change the cultural conversation about why people are coming to the U.S. and to understand that people have something to contribute, maybe policies would change as well. Like I'd love to see Bright Futures, a policy, for example, with immigration where like back in the 80s, you could apply and other countries still have this, like Australia and, and other places where it's like if you have a skill for a particular job that's, you know, rare, hard to find or coveted, that then you, regardless of where you're from, if you're from the Middle East or if you're from, you know, this country or that country, that you could apply and that you would be given a fair chance. Because that's really what has made America great in the past. And that's what's threatened when we start talking about closing borders and and having having a different mindset about people who want to be in the U.S. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AdBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At adblue.com slash directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to adblue.com slash directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Mia Network, and you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. 
check out our next episode where we will talk with Dr. Erica Buchanan Rivera about the current state of education in the U.S. Until next time, Brown Girls. Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Let Danielle's fiery passion for creating a better world kickstart your day and get woke with her bevy of special guests from the world of news and politics, art, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and in on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a Black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody.